Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here today. Good to see all these uh, beautiful blue shirts. I'm not good at color, but I think they're blue, right? Yeah. Good to see you guys as well. Say, Pastor Dale, what are you stalling for? Nothing. When I was uh, a parent at home with my kids, and they were still really little, I actually used to balance my kids in my hand. They were like 10 months old, couldn't even walk yet. And they would stand in my hand, literally, both feet. And I would hold them out like this, and they would look at me, and I would look at them, eyes locked on each other. And they're like little acrobats. They, they just would hold their arms out and be perfectly balanced. And I could, I could literally walk with them like this. And I am sure if America's Got Talent had been around, we would have made it to the finals. <laughs> now, don't try this at home, all right? But it was really, it was a lot of, it was, it was fun. And then one day, I went to do that with them. And they had this look of fear on their little faces. And kind of looked back at me and hung on to me. And it was like, no, daddy, no. And that was, that was the end of our act. And, um, and I wondered to myself, why? What, what happened that all of a sudden, they didn't want to let me do that with them anymore? We're in our series, God Speak. And we are talking about prayer. And prayer is communication with God. And so far, we've talked about how to hear from God, primarily through his word, though God can certainly speak in other avenues and other means, but he'll never say anything that does not agree with his word. So if you hear something that's not agreeing with his word, you're not hearing from God. That's why you got to know his word really well. And then we talked a little bit about how to speak back to God, again, using his word. And then last weekend we looked at how to pray when it feels like you don't have time to pray. And we have based our series on the Lord's Prayer. And I thought it'd be good for us to say it again together. So say it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We then, last weekend, looked at a condensed version of the Lord's Prayer. And Max Lucado, pastor and author, kind of wrote this up as a prayer to pray when there's no time to really, you know, spend a lot of time on your knees really seeking God. And what I said last weekend, it's a great prayer. It's kind of um, taking the Lord's Prayer and condensing it. But if you don't know what you're praying, it doesn't do any good to say a long prayer or a short prayer. You got to have the meaning behind it. And so let's remember that prayer. Let's, let's say it aloud together. Ready? Father, you are good. I need your help. Heal me and forgive me. They need your help. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. So we said don't just recite it out there and hope something good happens. 
And then we explored its meaning. So if you weren't here last weekend, I really want to encourage you to go online and listen to that message because it's going to help you uh, in a tremendous way, in a practical way when you're praying that prayer. And by the way, how many of you used the pocket prayer at some point this past week besides me? All right? few of you did. All right? If you know what it means, it's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. Well, this weekend, I want to take us to another aspect of prayer that's very important. In fact, you can't really pray without it, and that is faith. So let's just say that word together. So we've said it, one, two, three, faith. But what does that mean? <clears throat> Not just generally, but what does that mean in terms of prayer, to pray in faith? If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you quickly realize that if faith isn't involved, God isn't involved. And if you don't pray with faith, your prayer ends up being empty, it ends up being just a mantra, just a jumble of words that are kind of coming out of your mouth. Faith is a prayer what gas is to a car. Don't have gas in the car, you aren't going to go anywhere, right? It's what heat is to cooking food. If you don't have heat, some source of heat, that food is not going to get cooked. Same thing is true of prayer. You got to have faith when you pray, but what does that mean to pray with faith? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Can I remember that? You got to believe he exists. So that must have something to do with this whole idea of faith and also praying of faith. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Important word. All the heart, all the mind, all the strength. Who earnestly are seeking him. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God connects with somebody who responds with faith, big things happen. Great things happen. Doesn't matter how young, doesn't matter how old they are. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters people with faith, big things happen. Lives are changed dramatically. The opposite is also true. When he encounters somebody with little or no faith, less is accomplished. In fact, it is said that when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, he could do very little because they didn't believe in who he was. There was no earnestness in their belief. As far as they're concerned, he was the carpenter's son, the kid that grew up there. And in fact, they even tried to push him off the cliff because they saw his claims as being so blasphemous that he was a son of God. So where there's faith, God does a lot. Where there's little or no faith, God does little or nothing. There's an interesting passage in the book of James, and our pastors preached on it this past August and did a great job with it. James was a half-brother of Jesus, converted to, to believe Jesus was the Messiah after the resurrection, then led the mother church in Jerusalem and wrote a letter to Christians spread throughout Asia Minor, what we think of today as modern-day Turkey. And at the end of that letter, he says something about prayer. Now, I'm not going to unpack this verse because I'll have to do that at a different time. But I want you to grasp what he says about prayer. He says, and the prayer offered in faith, some versions have, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. 
the Lord will raise him up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. There's a lot of wills going on in there that are conditional on this prayer of faith. Now in the context, if someone's sick, call for the elders, they'll anoint them with oil, pray over them, and the prayer of faith will affect healing. So James says a prayer of faith is very powerful. But it raises a bit of a question. And the question that it raises is this. Well, how much faith is necessary for God to do a miracle? Whether that's turning a situation around or whether that's healing somebody or healing me. I mean, is it 100% faith that's required? And if I have 100% faith, can I bank on the fact that God's going to change my circumstances and heal me? Whether I'm a student or I'm an adult, can I, can I bank on that? And if God doesn't heal me or God doesn't turn things around, does that mean I had 75% faith and not 100% faith? Or that the people praying for me didn't have enough faith, the elders or whoever it is that's praying over me? Is that why nothing changed or happened in my life? Well, how many of you would agree that Jesus had perfect faith? I hope we would all agree if we're followers of Christ, right? If you're not, I can understand why you wouldn't agree because you're exploring that. I'm glad you are. But if we're followers of Christ, we believe Jesus had perfect faith. And yet, he did not get all his prayer answered either. You say, what do you mean by that? Remember when he prayed, he said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. If there's another way to save humanity other than my death and my suffering, let it be. Well, there is no other way that we would ever be saved from our sins. And so that prayer was not answered. But Jesus did say, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul, how many of you say Paul had pretty strong faith? Why, well, I would agree too. But not all, the prayer, not all of Paul's prayers were answered either. Read the book of Acts carefully. Even in his own life, he asked for healing three times from this thorn in his, in his flesh, whatever it was. Despite asking three different times, God did not respond to his prayer other than to say, I'm going to leave it there. My grace is sufficient for you. And last weekend we said when it comes to healing, sometimes God responds instantaneously, sometimes progressively, but he will always respond ultimately. And then I love the story in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus encounters this man who has a son who's demon-possessed. And the guy had asked the disciples of Jesus to deliver his son and the disciples didn't have the ability. They couldn't do it. And when Jesus shows up, he confronts Jesus about it and Jesus is pretty disappointed with the lack of faith. And he says to the man, he says, if you believe anything is possible, and I love what the man says. He says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And I'm so glad for that other part, help my unbelief. Because sometimes I believe, personally I believe, but I still struggle with some nagging doubts. How about you? Or am I alone? You do too, perhaps, huh? I'm glad Jesus didn't fold his arms in that, in that incident and say to the guy, well, I can't help you till you're at 100%. See me another day. Even though the guy said, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus still responded and delivered his son. Because God is a God of grace and certainly a God of patience. So what does it mean? What does it mean to have faith when we pray? What is the prayer of faith? How can our faith grow? To answer the question, we go back to the Lord's Prayer. And we go back to a, a phrase in the Lord's Prayer that I want to camp on for the rest of our time together. 
And it's that part in the Lord's Prayer that goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, I have it memorized King James, sorry. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Then what? On earth as it is in heaven. That's the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Now I try to read widely. I try to read people with different perspectives than myself. I think you, you learn and gain from that. I love to read the, the rabbis, those who are not followers of Jesus, and some of the Messianic rabbis who are followers of Jesus. And Rabbi Khan, who is a Messianic rabbi, talks about what he calls the heaven-earth continuum. And that's what's being referred to here when Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would suggest to you that unless we understand the heaven and earth continuum, we won't understand what it really means to practice faith. We're missing out on an important part of our spiritual lives. But rather than me trying to explain the heaven and earth continuum, we'll draw it, okay? And that'll help me explain it. So grab your pens and, and paper out. You guys bring something to draw with, students? All right, good. So you guys get all A's, all right? Uh, Rest of you, don't stare at me. Try it. It'll help you, okay? Now, I want you to be gracious and draw a picture of yourself and kind of yourself uh, like you're on the move someplace, okay? And we're going to say that you're, on a, you're in a desert, all right? And if you're in a desert, you're always looking for shade. You're looking for water, all right? So what I want you to do is I want you to draw an oasis. Pastor Khaled drew one last night in our service. He took notes and and I saw his oasis, and he has such a future as an artist. It made mine look so sad, all right? But uh, I don't know. I didn't have drawing when I went to seminary, I guess. All right, so there you go. I don't even have him on the right level, for Pete's sakes. All right? So you've got you in the desert, and you're trying to get to an oasis. Now, if I asked you how you're going to get there, you could say, well, I can walk there. Uh, maybe if it's far away, I can drive there. And maybe it's really far away, I could get a jet and I could fly over there. If I were to ask you, well, where are you going to start? You would look at me like I wasn't very bright. You would say to me, well, where do you think I'm going to start? I'm going to start where I am in order to get where I want to go. Let's talk a little bit about that. Where are you right now? What kind of desert are you in right now? Now, you may not be in a desert right now. You might be in a really good place in your life, and I'm glad for you. I don't know where you'll be tomorrow or next month. But I'm going to guess there might be some of us here who are in a desert of illness, uh, chronic sickness, or maybe you're battling cancer like so many people seem to be doing these days. Or maybe you're in a, a desert of loneliness. You know, I was thinking about, I've been writing a little bit uh, of late, and I've been thinking about, growing up as a kid. You know, I experienced a lot of loneliness as a student. I think sometimes we forget that you know, life is lonely for our students. Would you guys agree? It's not easy, right? Maybe you're in a desert of loneliness. And perhaps you're in a desert of financial stress. You need a better job. You're in between jobs. You wish you didn't have the job you had. And and you're financially kind of struggling. And you know, we could say relational desert. We could say a lot of different things. When you're in a situation like that, when you're in a desert, you're looking for an oasis, right? You're looking, if you're sick, you want an oasis of health. If you're lonely, you want a, an oasis of relationship. 
if you are without a job or struggling financially, you want an oasis where you're financially solvent. If it's a relational kind of desert you're in, you want a, an oasis where all the relationships are mended and are good. And if I asked you, where do you start in that situation? You would probably say to me, well, I have to start where I am. I have to start with my loneliness, my sickness, my financial situation, the stress in relationships, whatever it is. You say, that's, that's where I have to start. But that's not true when it comes to the kingdom of God and being a follower of Christ. So I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the kingdom of God has invaded the kingdom of men. It happened when Jesus came to earth. It happened long before that, but particularly when Christ came to earth. He introduced his kingdom. He talked a lot about his kingdom. A whole new uh, uh, set of values and ethics that go with this kingdom. And he established his kingdom in our hearts through his death and resurrection and ascending of the Holy Spirit. So when I become a follower of Christ, the kingdom of God begins and it starts in my heart. And it begins to change my life with my values, my ethics, and my beliefs until someday God's physical kingdom takes over this earth. And I want you to keep that in mind. Because when I ask you where you are, the reality is you're as much here in heaven, so to speak, the oasis, as you are here on this earth. That when I ask you where you should begin, the beginning place is not here, it's actually there. That the finish line for us is actually the starting line for change in our lives, in our relationships. And it's kind of a foreign concept for us to to try to understand that. But that's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. When he said, on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, where is he starting? He's starting in heaven. He's saying, what is going on in heaven, let that be what's going on here on earth. And when I say heaven, don't think of golden streets. Don't, don't get the picture of a place as much as get in your mind the concept of God's presence. Jesus ascended and went to be with his father. Those who die, we believe their bodies are left on earth, but their spirits go into paradise with the Lord, awaiting the day of resurrection and then the establishment of God's physical kingdom here on earth. So Jesus says, I, I want your will to be done here on earth. I want God's will, not my will, but God's will to be done here on earth as it's already being done in his presence. As it's already being done in his presence. Now, the direction of blessings, right? The, the flow of blessings always comes from God to us. Always comes from heaven, so to speak, to earth. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that God comes down to Mount Sinai, right? Read the book of Exodus. We talked about the tabernacle this past summer. God comes down to the holy of holies in the tabernacle to dwell with his people. God then comes down to the holy of holies, the temple to be with his people. And then God comes down in the flesh, in his son, to be with humanity. And he died, and he was buried, 
And God raised him up again. Now, why did Jesus come down? Well, obviously he came down to save us, but he also came down to raise us up. And not just physically, but spiritually. Not just about the resurrection that comes at the end of the age when our dead bodies are raised to new bodies in Christ if we're followers, but something even between then has happened. There's been a transporting of your spirit, so to speak, to another realm. You say, whoa, what are you talking about? Ephesians 2.6, what does it say? It says, and God raised, that's past tense, already been done, and God raised us up with Christ and seated, past tense, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. So if I ask you right now, where are you this minute? Most of you would say, I am in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. I'm in a church building called Wooddale Church, and I'm sitting on this uncomfortable pew or chair. That's what you would say. And in the one sense, you would be right. But if you're a follower of Christ, you would say, yeah, I'm here in prayer, but I'm also in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. But none of us thinks that way on a regular basis. When you get up in the morning, you don't look in the mirror and go, I'm here, but I'm there. (laughs) But what Jesus is saying is, before you say you're here, say you're there. Start with the fact that you're there and then think about being here. I am seated with him in heavenly places. Colossians chapter three, verse three. Jot it down, look it up later. Colossians chapter three, verse three. Says, for you died to this life. How many of you are dead right now? Right? Yeah, I mean, hopefully you have a pulse, check the person next to you. They may be sleeping, but wake them up to make sure they're alive, right? But listen to what he says. He says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, where is Christ in God? In the heavenly realms. Your real life is as much in the heavenly realms as it is here. What a mystery, huh? So I love my faith. It's a mystery as well as, as well as this thing that's so real. So where are you? Are you here or are you there? Or are you there and are you here? Yes. Yes, I'm there and I'm also here. John Piper has this great illustration and it involves the songs. Some of you may know, how many of you know the song was recorded by Tony Bennett in 1962, I Left My Heart in San Francisco? Okay, now that's one of those songs that just the fact I brought it up, you'll be singing it in your mind the rest of the day. I'm very sorry, all right? Now I lived near, Marsh and I lived near San Francisco for 12 years. We went over there often. It is truly a beautiful city, a bit polluted these days with some issues going on, but, but a beautiful city. The Bay, Fisherman's Wharf, the Pacific, Golden Gate Bridge, the Golden Gate Park. It is a beautiful place. Really a beautiful place. So when Tony Bennett sings, I left my heart in, I still want to sing it, but I'm not going to. I left my heart in San Francisco. What is he saying? He's saying, I can be in Paris, I can be in Rome, I can be in Manhattan, I can be in Eden Prairie. But my heart is back there in San Francisco. San Francisco holds, holds my affection. 
San Francisco governs my tastes. San Francisco has a pull on me. I think one of the lines in the song says, it's my love is in San Francisco. So it doesn't matter where I am in the world, I really, I just feel this tremendous draw to go back to San Francisco. That's where I really feel at home. And I long for it, so he croons for it. Same thing is true for you and me. I may be in Eden Prairie, Minnesota right now, but I want to let you know that Minnesota does not hold my affections. Heavenly realm holds my affections. I feel a pull and I feel a draw to the heavenly realm, the presence of God. God governs my tastes, my choices, my ethics, my values, my morals, my beliefs. That's where I feel at home and when I get down on my knees and I get quiet before God, when I'm actually honestly worshiping God, I'm at home. That's where I belong. See, when, when you get that, when you understand that, when you are living in that space, it redefines this space. It totally changes that space. So the secret is not to live out of the past. And there are a lot of people who live out of the past. It's a sad place to be. You know, even as you get older, I find this in myself. I, I find myself thinking about my kids when they were little. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with fond memories. But that's, don't let fond memories define life for you. If your life is what was, oh my goodness, that's a sad state to be. Neither, let, neither live out of your present. Who cares about the present? Live out of your realized future. Realized future, meaning it's future, but it's realized now, spiritually speaking. That's what we're supposed to live out of. I love this phrase, run the race that's already been run. Christ has already run the race with you. He carried you across the finish line. You're just running a race that's already been run. The victory's already there for you. So there's a sense when I pray and say, Lord, I'm coming before you. I got this disease in my body. I want to thank you that in one sense, I'm disease free. You've already healed me. I'm going to have a new body. I'm going to be free of all sickness. I'm going to live in a kingdom here on earth with no disease whatsoever. If you wouldn't mind letting me taste a little bit of that now in my human mortality here, that would be great. But thank you. The prayer's already been answered. God, I'm lonely right now. I could use some friends. I could use some companionship. But I praise you and thank you that you've already answered prayer because in eternity I'm going to have more fellowship and more friends that I know what to do with. But if you can give me a little taste of it now, that would be awesome. But thank you, you've already answered prayer. Oh, Lord, someday I'm going to be the richest woman in the world. I'm going to be the richest guy in the world. I'm going to have it all. And I thank you that you've already answered that prayer. But if it's possible to help me a little bit out in this life, I'd really appreciate that. See, that's a different way to pray, isn't it? That's praying with faith. You say, well, that's really weird. It's not normal. It's not normal. It is weird compared to the way of the world. See, the problem is, the reason we struggle so much with this, why it's so hard for us is we're so used to living out of ourselves. Right? We're so used to living out of ourselves. We're so used to starting from here. And this seems like a fantasy. Not a reality. 
But spiritually speaking, this is more of a reality than this. Because this is passing away. This is coming into being. First spiritually and then physically. But because we're so used to doing things out of ourselves, we have a tendency, those of us who are followers of Christ, to do the same thing with our belief and with our faith. So if I were to talk to you about holiness or purity or goodness or kindness, our propensity is to go and try to be holy out of our own ability, pure out of our own ability, good out of our own ability, kind of our own ability, which is noble and wonderful, but you fail miserably at it. But if I start with the kingdom of God, first what I understand is God gives me the potential because the spirit lives in me. God gives me the potential to live out of his holiness, out of his goodness, out of his purity, out of his kindness. That's what's called the victorious Christian life. Not living out of me, but living out of him. And it opens the door to enormous potential. And I think it helps us understand some strange words like this from Jesus in Mark 11. Jesus says, I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you received it, it will be yours. Well, if I understand the heaven-earth continuum, it makes total sense to me. I can pray for healing, and I can thank God. It's mine. It's mine. I've been healed. It's just, when am I going to realize it? Or think about Paul, some of his words, like in Philippians 4, he says, always be full of joy in the Lord. It's hard to be full of joy in the Lord when you're lonely, when you're sick, when you're struggling with finances or relationships. But if you start there first, you can have joy in the worst desert. Because you're starting with the heavenly realm and the fact that you're seated, spiritually speaking, with Christ in the heavenly realm. I say it again, rejoice. It's kind of like you have to say it twice because the first time they're going, yeah, right. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. So there's that sense of the realm. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God, where you are seated in hidden in him already. So why did my kids stop standing in the palm of my hand? Because they became aware of their environment. They gained depth perception. And when they started looking around and stopped looking at my eyes and started looking at everything else, that's when they got shaky and said, no, daddy, no. Isn't it interesting how Jesus oftentimes says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He keeps calling us back to childlike, simple trust and faith. Remember when Peter's in the boat and he sees Jesus walking in the water? He says, I want to walk in the water too. And I love Jesus' response. Come on. Paraphrasing a little bit. He steps out of the boat and he starts walking in the water. I've said it here before. I'll say it again. He actually did walk on water. I don't know how far, but he actually did. And then he got his eyes on the wind and the waves. And when he got his eyes on the wind and the waves, what happens? He starts to sink. And Jesus pulls him out. Oh, you have little faith. What's wrong? We've got to keep our eyes locked on Jesus. In the fate, six, uh, on the sixth fateful day of the Apollo 13 mission, maybe you've seen the movie recreated based on the fact, the three astronauts had to make a difficult 
decision. They had to course correct to get the ship back home again. The problem was they had shut down the onboard computer for navigation. So what do you do? How do you, how do, you do this? You got a 39 second burn of the main engines to move you around, but you have no reference point. So Jim Lovell, the brilliant astronaut, realized he needed to find some, some fixture in space that he could lock onto and kind of use it to guide the 39 second uh, burn to keep them on, to put them on the right course. So if you remember the movie, there's that tiny little window, right, that he looks through and he's looking for something and he finds the earth. He sees the earth. And he realizes that if he can keep the earth in the window for 39 seconds while the engines are burning, they, mathematically speaking, they will be on the right course to get home. And so for 39 ten, uh, tenths seconds, he's trying to keep that earth in the window so they can get home safely. Obviously he did and they did. You got a little window in your life. You gotta keep Jesus in that window. I'll call it your mind. You gotta keep Jesus in your mind. For the 39 seconds you're here on this earth. Now I remember I, since I've been writing about when I was a student, when I was a student in school, up until about my sophomore year in college, to me, if you said, Dale, define eternity, I would say a year in school. I just thought it would never end. Now at this stage in my life, I wonder where is all the time gone? Life is so short. It's a 39 second burn. And God is saying for the 39 second burn called life on this earth, keep, keep my son in the window. Keep my son, keep him in your mind and keep yourself in him in your mind. Don't lose focus. Remember, every problem you will ever have, you could ever have, has been solved. Every crisis you have had or ever will have has been solved. Every obstacle has been overcome. Every breakthrough you need has been broken through. It's been broken through. Why? Because we don't start from here. We start from there to understand how to behave here. We have everything we need there. We may realize some of it here. Or we may suffer here. But it's temporary. The solution's already been provided. Let me ask you a question as we close. So where are you now? Let's stand together and let's pray. Well, Father, we're standing here in, in prairie, but not really. We're actually standing in the heavenly realm as much as we're standing here. God, I pray and ask that you would help us to learn to live here in light of there. To honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.